Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Lillian Nakagawa, a member of the club's Asia-Pacific Affairs Forum and your chair for today. We also welcome our listening audience, and we invite everyone to visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our program today, Hong Kong on the Brink, with our distinguished speaker, Jeffrey Wasserstrom, in conversation with Helen Zia. Jeffrey Wasserstrom is a professor of modern Chinese history at the University of California at Irvine. He is a longtime scholar of China and social unrest and student protests and is the author of numerous books and articles. He has also written about China for a popular audience. His articles have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, and other general publications. He is also active on social media. Uh, His Twitter is at J-W-A-S-S-E-R-S, at J-Wassers. His most recent book is the forthcoming Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. (laughs) And today he will help us understand what is happening in Hong Kong, the protests, and China's response. Helen Zia is an award-winning author, journalist, and activist who has covered Asian American communities and social and political movements. She has written numerous books. Her latest is called Last Boat Out of Shanghai, The Chinese Who Fled Mao's Revolution. This was published in 2019 to high acclaim, and she was also speaker here at the club, to a sold-out house uh, talk about her book. Uh, Her articles have appeared in numerous publications, and she has appeared on NPR uh, television programs and many films. Please join me in welcoming Jeffrey Wasserstrom and Helen Zia. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lillian. And uh, it's wonderful to be here uh, at the Commonwealth Club. And thank you all for being out here on such a beautiful night. You're in for quite a treat um, to hear uh, Jeff Wasserstrom talk about... um, you know, something that we've all seen in the news on the headlines um, for quite some time, uh, demonstrations that have been going on for more than eight months now since last June. And um, and so uh, I what I thought was and oh, and about the Twitter feed, Jeff, not only he is one of the leading uh, scholars about modern China, but also very, very um insightful and knowledgeable about what's been going on with Hong Kong. And his Twitter feed is so active. I've been a follower for some time. And really, if you're interested in this topic, you know, there are links every day about about this and commentary from Jeff. So um, now the pressure's on. I've yeah. <laughs> but so I, I, I guess I, I have to say I really admire Jeff so much. And as a as a um, matter of uh, of 
being fully um, full disclosure here too, Jeff did a wonderful review of my book, actually the very first review that came out in the Wall Street Journal. And so I, I want to publicly thank you for that, Jeff. I want to say it was a great pleasure to do that. And it's um, perfect, it seems to me, to have um, Helen be a part of a conversation about the situation in Hong Kong, because many people in Hong Kong now are asking exactly the same kinds of questions that the characters and the, the the real life characters in her book were asking themselves in the 1940s, when Shanghai at that point was the most cosmopolitan city in China, was a city that was part of China but also part of a wider world, and was about to come under rule by the Chinese Communist Party that had a different view of how cities should interact with the world. And people were trying to say, do we stay here? Do we try to figure out how to make the kind of life that we've had here continue against all odds? Or do we leave? And if we leave, where do we go? And these are many of the same questions that um, people in Hong Kong are asking now. So there's a really interesting then and now uh, parallel to this. And um, I was delighted to see Helen showed me her copy, her advanced copy of the book. And it's very well thumbed, and it's full of notes. A lot of notes. It's full of post-it notes and that. You'll so, do that too. And and by the way, Jeff's book is in the back if you'd like to get your own copy. Um, thank you, Jeff. So we have a mutual admiration society going on. Um, and 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 I. This is actually my first time meeting Jeff, and I I wanted to know just a little bit about his own background, how he came to be such an accomplished scholar in modern Chinese history. Uh, I just learned that Jeff has Bay Area roots, and uh, so if you know um, Jeff is uh, fluent in Mandarin, can read Chinese, so all of the. Um, uh, research he's done for this book and and otherwise he's also able to read it in Chinese. So if you might share just a little bit about how they too could become China scholars. So one of the things is I, I didn't grow up with this fascination with China. I, I did grow up with a fascination with protest and a fascination with revolutions. Um, and I knew I wanted to be a writer of some kind, but I didn't know what kind of things I would write. I knew I probably wanted to teach, but I didn't know what subject I would want to teach. Gradually, I narrowed down to the idea of teaching history. I was drawn to history, and I was drawn to history of places that had had uh, upheavals of different sorts. I'd been, and I was gradually drawn to the idea of, of China, in part because uh, China was, Chinese history, modern history, was so full of upheavals and also full of upheavals that were seemed interestingly parallel to things that I was familiar with growing up as a child in the 1960s um, and uh, 1970s, but yet very different in another way. Uh, the difference was that in, in the Chinese historical cases that I was studying, there were cases where students would take to the streets, and then members of other social groups would say, hey, the students are protesting. I wonder what they're protesting about. Maybe we should join them. And that wasn't the typical response to campus activism in the 1960s in America. So I just became intrigued by the sense of something similar and something different, which is, I think, always what makes for, for, for me interesting things to write about, something that seem parallel and yet, when you press harder, seem radically different, or seem radically different, but then you press harder and they seem somewhat the same. And so that gradually drew me uh, to China studies. And... I was fortunate. I went to UC Santa Cruz. That was one of my um, 
Northern California connections. And yeah, this is in the late 1970s when I started there, and they already were teaching the Chinese language and had a Chinese. So I signed up for that. I thought it would be interesting. And I signed up for Chinese history courses. And I had a, there were wonderful books assigned to me that were history books, uh, but were written by very gifted storytellers. Mm. And so I was drawn into um, Jonathan Spence and Frederick Wakeman, uh, who were both very fine historians, but also um, told you stories that made you want to find out how they ended. And they also assigned, the, the professor also assigned uh, uh, Judge D. Mystery, um, a historically based mystery, style, uh, mystery story, and I, I loved whodunits. So this seemed like, if this is what Chinese history is about. Um, unfortunately, not all books in Chinese history are quite, quite as enthralling, but it, it at least gave me something um, to shoot for. So, that was, so I drifted sort of into to Chinese studies, and um, it was also at a time when it was just starting to be possible to go to China. And so I was able to go to China in the mid-1980s um, and go to Shanghai to study student protests uh, for my dissertation, another Bay Area connection. I was at Berkeley doing a PhD at the time. I'd gone to Harvard to do a master's. I spent two years on the East Coast to see how, the, how other people lived and then hurried back to California. Um, but I was able to go to Shanghai in 1986, 87, and took my first trip to Hong Kong, which at that point was still a British crown colony and was a place where there weren't really student protests. So I kind of went to Hong Kong for a break, um, for R&R and a break from studying student protests and student protests I thought of as the thing that happened in Shanghai that I was interested in, and I didn't imagine them happening in Hong Kong. Now I go to Shanghai, and I know there won't be student protests, and I go to Hong Kong, and I know there will be. Hmm. How ironic, <laughs> and how fortunate we are to have your perspective um, from a, a, a long historical view of social protests and in a region that really has been fraught with it, a country that was born out of protests, and... One of the things I know as, as somebody who um, uh, writes about this region and its implications here is that the, the um, narrative in America is really dominated pretty much that, you know, one point of view, one group is right, another one is wrong. And that's true for um, the coverage about Hong Kong and about China in general, whether it's about a virus or um, political movement. So I just thought before we get into the book, I just, I'd be very curious for a show of hands. How many of you uh, consider yourselves Hong Kongers or have family who are in Hong Kong? A few. Okay. And how many of you have been to Hong Kong? Uh, a lot more. And so, um, and, and so I think we have a, a, a good base to, to go forward here. Um, so, so, Jeff, I would love for you to, to – I have, as he pointed out, read this forwards and backwards a couple of times. And um, if you could talk about what brought you to this uh, subject, you know, what were you looking for when you started to uh, write this book? You know, clearly there's been a, a, a long history of, of protest for and against various things at different points for communism and, you know, and – pro and anti mainland china and so so at this particular time what took you to this and was there something you were going to be looking for in writing this book so i i signed on to write this book um a year ago 
at a time when it seemed that protest, the time for massive popular protests on the streets of Hong Kong had really passed, which is something you should keep in mind. I did not see the big protests coming. Neither did anybody else. <laughs> but I think the ability of Hong Kong to surprise and defy expectations is something crucial about Hong Kong and something that's, that's fascinated me about, about the place. I mean, as I said, in, when I first went there in 87, I thought of this as a place where protests didn't really happen very much. And a lot of people thought of it as a fairly apolitical. People were focusing on how to make and spend money at a time when that wasn't really the focus in, on the Chinese mainland. Now in the cities of the Chinese mainland, that's what people spend a lot of their time thinking about. And in Hong Kong, they spend a lot of time thinking about uh, protest. Um, but I had started to get fascinated by Hong Kong's protests about five years ago when the Umbrella Movement happened. And this was an occupation at the same around a little bit after Occupy Wall Street, a little bit after there had been an occupation movement in Taiwan to push for, um, for change there. And people had set up tents in the center of the financial district of Hong Kong Island and brought life to a standstill there and created an alternative kind of community. It's the closest thing to a utopian space I've ever experienced when I went over um, there for a short period of time. And there were two other Occupy Zones in other parts of Hong Kong as well. This was the biggest social movement in any part of the People's Republic of China since Tiananmen. Uh, it was 25, for 25 years after Tiananmen. And the Tiananmen protests of 89 happened right as I was finishing my dissertation. So I was doing a dissertation on student movements in Shanghai before 1949. And suddenly there was the biggest student-led um, social movement of the, of the current period happening at that time. Um, and, but then it seemed that the Chinese Communist Party had figured out how to stop sustained uh, social movements from happening in cities. There would be lots of protests, but they'd be short-lived. They'd tend to be just one social group. In Hong Kong, members of all different social groups had begun to turn out on the streets. Young people played an active role, and I've mentioned students, but it was really... Um, cross-generational, the Occupy Zones and Umbrella Movement. So I got drawn into it then and then started going to Hong Kong more frequently because I realized Hong Kong was the place in the PRC where the things, kinds of events that had interested me early in my career, and I drifted away from some, were happening again. So the the book grew out of that desire to understand that, but I thought of it as understanding something that had flared up extraordinarily in 2014, and then people had kept pushing uh, for change, but seemed to be really to be losing it, that the city seemed to be dying, or the things that made it distinctively different from mainland cities. And people had had carried out what seemed to be last-ditch efforts to maintain the sense of um, special things being possible there, and they seemed to have lost, and the city seemed to be, that side of the city seemed to be dying. Then the book changed trajectory very much when there were these giant protests. But I think still, to some extent, it feels like a different kind of last-ditch effort. I knew, I thought where I'd end the book was June 4th, uh, 2019, which would be the 30th anniversary of the Beijing massacre of 1989. That massacre cannot be commemorated any place on the mainland. You can't even hold private commemorations of it these days. But you can hold, there's a small vigil held in Macau, which used to be a colony of Portugal and has become what's called a special administrative region of the PRC. Hong Kong's the other special administrative region. And there, there's a 
very big vigil every year. And I thought that attending that vigil would be the final point. And I would end by saying, how many more years will Hong Kong be different enough that this can happen? As it happened, though, instead of an end point, that became the starting point for a new set of protests. Right. Um, that haven't stopped, even though the news has now been preoccupied by, you know, there can only be one story about Asia in the <laughs> evening news at night. And, of course, the virus is is the big one. But there's still – and we'll get to that, you know. And, and I hope you have questions for, for Jeff, too. Um, your historical account, uh, in, a, in a very concise way, of the different um, – the roots of the protest movements, and, and you just were talking about the umbrella movement, but you go further back mm-hmm. to the financial crisis, you know, the late um, 1990s, and, and how there is a, a trajectory of, of protest, and each wave sort of learns something from the previous one. And, um, and so I – and where we are today, I think, I, I, and I'd like to know maybe for you to talk about what the goals are of the protest movement, because I, I was in Hong Kong uh, in November, and there was a, a, a literary festival in Hong Kong. The protests were going on, and I um, connected with an American uh, Hong Konger, you know, Hong Kong American um, uh, documentary filmmaker who was actually trying to do a film about the protest movements. Yeah. And she she was very frustrated because it was so, in a way, decentralized the way Occupy Wall Street said we have no leaders, which in a way just means that you can't find the leaders. <laughs> and so she had trouble with that, and she said that there are actually several factions within the protest, what's called the protest movement, and not all of them have the same goals and you know, not all of them agree with uh, Molotov cocktails or, or violence. And it, it was just, she was frustrated because it was very difficult to find, you know, who to talk to. And on the other side of that, I ran into many people who maybe would form the vast middle. They're not pro-protesters, they're not pro-communist, but really they just want to live life in peace. And all of this disruption is making them crazy. And in fact, what some of them um, were most angry about was Great Britain and the UK and the fact that they had 150 years to establish a democracy in, you know, in their colony, which of course wasn't going to happen. And so, so I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the points of view you found there and, and um, you know, that it's not all one monolithic movement either. So, so I guess one way to sort of step back and here I'll, I'll play, you know, put on the historian's hat a bit and say that a lot of the, uh, there are a bunch of unresolved issues that go back to the deal that was made to have Hong Kong become part of the People's Republic of China. And to go very far back, part of Hong Kong was what became part of the British Empire in um, 1841 as part of the deal of the Opium War. The end of the Opium War, Britain, that was frustrated by not being able to get access to the China market, the desire to have free access to the China market has fueled dreams in the West for a very long time. And so they could to. sell opium and so they could China sell opium. They could, yeah. they could sell, they, they framed it as a desire for free trade, but it was free trade on their terms. Mm-hmm. And um, the Qing dynasty didn't want that. Anyway, 
um, Britain won, and the negotiator on the British side got this island of Hong Kong and got fired because um, the foreign secretary back in London thought it was such an unpromising piece of land that would never amount to much of anything. But Hong Kong, as I said, continually surprises. It became a great, a great city. But then there was another piece of land, Kowloon uh, Peninsula, right across from the island that then was claimed after a second war, uh, again, of sort of um, foreign, um, foreign forces beating the Qing dynasty and making demands on it. But then at the end of the 19th century, there was still other land that was leased to uh, Britain on a 99-year lease that would end 1997. So 1997, most, uh, a large amount of the territory that's Hong Kong and a large amount of the territory where food is grown and that has access to water were f- called the new territories. And those were going to, back to go back to Britain. And Britain agreed that, the rest, that all of Hong Kong should go back then. A deal was made in 1984 between Deng Xiaoping and Margaret Thatcher that in 1997, Hong Kong would become part of the People's Republic of China and something called one country, two systems would be the rule. It would be part of the country of China, but its way of life would be able to continue for 50 years until 2047. Hong Kong is a peculiar place that's lived out with a sort of expiration date for, for present arrangements. But the problem was, what did that mean? That as The idea was that as things were in 1997, so they would remain for 50 years. What the Chinese Communist Party largely meant was the economic system would stay the same. When there was one country, two systems, they really had in mind the economic system because there was some value that they could get out of Hong Kong operating differently, being a key financial center where different rules would apply, a different legal system would apply, international companies would feel comfortable there, they would be able to make, um, make money off this situation, and it wouldn't cause a kind of political threat. Um, the final British authorities, including Lord Pat and the last governor, um, and Hong Kong people had never gotten, had never had democracy. They were a colony. They were a colony. But as 1997 came closer, um, Chris Patton tried to introduce some things that would make Hong Kong a somewhat freer place by the time it was the <coughs> Chinese Communist Party's problem to deal with things like protests. So there were some things in Hong Kong that were different and I would say better under the British than was true in parts of, of the mainland. There was a freer press. Uh, there was more of the right uh, to freedom of association. But there wasn't democracy. And they pushed toward democracy but didn't introduce full <coughs> democracy. So some of the criticism is if the British had done more sooner, then Hong Kong would have been in better shape. On the Chinese side uh, from Beijing, it was somewhat in bad faith that they tried to do as much as they did during the lead up. What do you mean when you're about to give this, uh, give this over, you want the people to have more of a say? But there are all kinds of unresolved things about that one country, two systems. What's the two systems part? For some Hong Kongers, <coughs> this is some division within the movement. Some people in the movement say what the two systems should be is, means Hong Kong people should be able to decide everything about um, how, how their city is run, other than, say, foreign policy. But for other more moderate forces or, or more conservative forces would be, no, we just want to be able to maintain the degree to which we had a freer press, more of a rule of law. We don't need to push for democracy. So within the movement, there are people who are pushing very hard for open elections for the chief executive for Hong Kong, who at this point is elected, 
but is elected only people who are pretty much going to be in line with Beijing can even stand for the office, and only 2,000 people in a city of over um, 7 million get to actually vote. So the chief executive is not that. Now what keeps the movement going, though, I think, is a lot of Hong Kong people feel that the current chief executive just hasn't been straight with the people about anything that's been going on, that the police are out of control, um, that there's been violence by protesters, and there's no question there's been some violence by protesters. The violence by protesters has mostly been about uh, against objects, have been vandalism, have been attacks on buildings, rare cases of injuries of people. Those rare cases of protesting, protesters hurting people are then shown on video over and over and over again on the mainland and within feeds of people who um, disagree with the protests. The police have fired an enormous amount of tear gas and have used tear gas not just on streets where it's fairly common for tear gas to be used in different places to disperse protesters, but have fired tear gas canisters inside subway stations. And so a lot of things have been happening that there's what keeps the discontent going is partly what's happened, but partly that the government hasn't, hasn't apologized, hasn't started an investigation of the police, hasn't, has kept pretending that everything's fine except for the acts of violence by the protesters. Seems like a worldwide um, problem. I mean, as there are you a were lot describing of that, I was thinking about this past week and some things that we hear here that we don't really feel that the, our own government is being you know, truthful necessarily. No, I know. And there are, I mean, definitely there, it's, it's ironic that another of the events going on in the Commonwealth Club now is Ezra Klein talking about why are we so polarized? And that polarization, um, it's very, very strong. It's polarization, though I think it's also important occasionally to note where there isn't complete polarization. So Hong Kong people, a lot of Hong Kong people look down upon mainland people as having more, um, less refined customs, less cosmopolitan. And a lot of mainland people look at Hong Kongers as full of themselves and ungrateful for things that they get out of being part of the country. But within each of those populations, there's a lot of diversity. There are Hong Kongers who don't feel that way at all about the mainland. There are mainland people who, who sympathize with the protests. And there are people who feel caught in between, who live in southern China, uh, just over the border onto the mainland, but speak Cantonese, that's the, 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 one of the lingua francas in Hong Kong, have friends and family in Hong Kong, and feel left out when there is this discussion of, of utter polarization. Well, and to your point about how people are in different positions, um, I'm on a WhatsApp thread that uh, sometimes during the protests there'll be hundreds of comments during the day, and um, some of the comments, I can't even believe I know the people, some of them who are writing them, but this is one. These violent terrorists are not only scum of the earth, but liars and cowards. If your cause is so noble and righteous, take off your effing masks and face the world. Show them you stand behind your peacefulness, and it goes on. And this is a mild one. And so, um, I, I mean, that's to your point about, you know, there's a, such a wide range of... Yeah, and I think too. bringing in the history of it, one of the things is, so when I talk sometimes about sort of these protests in a city, if you say there's a protest in a city that's part of a Communist Party-run state, 
and the police are, are trying to suppress it and using uh, very strong-arm tactics to suppress it. One response is, what's surprising about that? Communist Party-run states don't allow protests to happen, and the government doesn't admit the protesters might have a point. Communist Party-run states, that never happens. But the amazing thing about Hong Kong, after it became part of the People's Republic of China, was that actually things continued to happen there that had never happened in a Communist Party-run country before. China, to some extent, lived up to part of that promise that Hong Kong would have a different system. So in the early, early 2000s, there were very large protests against a new, uh, new security bill that the government wanted to introduce called Article 23. This was soon after the Patriot Act had gone through in the United States, talking about parallels. Article 23 wasn't that different in some of its specifics to the Patriot Act. But there were massive protests on the streets. Hundreds of thousands of people said, this is violating the one country, two systems because this is too much in line with what's going on in the mainland. And what's amazing is these were nonviolent protests and the, the local government in, in Hong Kong, even though it had to answer to Beijing, gave in. They withdrew that bill. There was, in 2012, there was an effort to bring in patri- mainland-style patriotic education to Hong Kong. Young protesters took the lead that time, nonviolent, largely, protests, only a little bit of militancy, but no real, um, nothing really out of the bounds of what we get, expect from civil disobedience, and the government backed down. Now, you look in 2019... Even bigger protests took place in early June than, than any of those that had taken place against another bill that was introduced, an extradition bill that would allow basically people that Beijing wanted to get over the border to be tried in um, mainland courts where you have very little, defendants have very, very few rights. People said, no, if you do this, then we don't really have the rule of law in Hong Kong. If we, if we have our own laws but Beijing can say, hand over somebody who's done something that we don't like, then we've really lost the rule of law. We've really lost the two systems part. A million people marched about eight months ago, almost exactly, well, actually, exactly eight months ago, um, I, was, I, I was in Hong Kong, and I saw a march by 3,000 lawyers, all dressed in black, wow. a silent march, because they were marching for the death of rule of law if this law went through. Three days late. I like to talk about that protest because I was there still. <laughs> then I left to come back to the U.S., and three days later, there was a march of a million people. Mm-hmm. So remember the 3,000 lawyers. Don't, <laughs> no. There were a million people on the streets on June 9th, and the government didn't come out and say, well, we need to reconsider this, or, well, we'll withdraw the bill. And the main demand then was just withdraw the bill. Nothing really happened. Three days later... There started to be, both the police started using tear gas and protesters stormed into a building, a small number of them, wearing masks. Um, one of them tore off, pulled off his mask to reveal his identity and now has essentially can never go back to Hong Kong. He's, he's now in the U.S. Um, but he said, I care about this enough that I'll show you uh, who I am. The next Sunday, still there had been no retreat of the bill. Next Sunday, an estimated larger crowd, some estimates said 2 million people, in a city of 7.5 million people. One of the largest protests in the history of the world and one of the largest in percentage of a political community. 
and the government still didn't didn't do anything. And only then, after a summer with some of this, some of the vandalism and the violence, then the bill gets withdrawn. And so one of the slogans in Hong Kong now is to the government, "You're the ones who taught us that nonviolent action doesn't work." So there is still a division within the movement. There are still people who who say nonviolence is the way to go. Another thing that happened was two of the most high-profile, strong proponents of nonviolent protest from the Umbrella Movement in 2014 were in prison, uh, ser- serving out prison terms when this new movement started, Benny Tai and Chan Kin Man. <clears throat> so they might have been voices of moderation. They might have been potential leaders. But they had been um, convicted of something like inciting people to incite. They weren't accused of actually doing anything violent themselves, but their words in 2014 could have been interpreted by some people to take militant action, so they were in prison. Hmm. These, are, these are academics. Maybe I relate to them a little bit. They're academics in you know, around 60. But there are uh, so many old. ironies in what you're saying. They might have been voices of moderation, but they were imprisoned, and so they could not. Right. And so that's yeah. part of the, you're the ones who taught us. Mm-hmm. And, and also the lesson from Umbrella Movement didn't succeed in achieving its goal of changing how the chief executive was elected. That was the goal then. And so people thought, well, maybe we should have stayed longer. Maybe it was that we were too willing to end the movement. So there's this, there's this very tragic trap now, the idea that, well, if we end it, then, you're, then things are, we're not going to get anywhere. There are moments of hope. I mean, there was a a district election for the lowest level um, legislature, legislature. And a, a sign of hope is that the election was able to take place rather than being canceled in the midst of all this. And the pro-democracy forces won an overwhelming landslide. But they still can't, they can only do some things, not, not the biggest things. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Well, it's so... I mean, there are so many uh, parallels and ironies. I mean, you brought up that at the time that um, the basic law was coming up and the Article um, 23, uh, the Patriot Act was happening, and here they are on the streets of Hong Kong protesting. Well, we didn't exactly have that. And the question of if we had these kind of protests here in the U.S., in any major city in San Francisco that went on for eight months and still have no sign of ending, um, to, you know, would our police be as restrained or our National Guard or whoever would be called in? And and so I sort of wanted to go in um, um, sort of the global, like, mm-hmm. uh, be, because there are some feelings that um, in the disagreements, well, who's funding the protest? Is it the CIA? Is it the, you know, U.S. government? Uh, We have um, Marco Rubio and Mike Pompeo are standing up for the human rights of people in Hong Kong, which is another irony. I mean, it's like, really? And uh, which has brought the ire of a lot of, you know, people who are, who who see how strange that is. And, 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 um, 
And if we go back to the history you're talking about, this uh, uh, tug of war between colonialism and imperialism, which is really where Hong Kong was formed, its birth was through that whole colonial system and, and, and you know, imperialism. And now we have you, the USA as the only superpower, but we have the contender China, and, you know, we see that in the news every day, really, about, you know, bad, bad China. And um, and so I wanted to ask you, how do you see this, you know, protest kind of fitting in? On the one hand, on a local level, it's people wanting to stand up for their rights. On the other hand, could they be, could this be being used in another way, in another narrative here, where, um, or globally, to, you know, that's really a competition between you know, um, the U.S. and China and fitting into that kind of struggle? Wow, that's a big, big question. And, and we could that's maybe start one. with the coronavirus is yeah, playing yeah, that out, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So um, there are all kinds of, I mean, there, there are ironies and there are cross-cutting things here. And, I mean, I do know young Hong Kong, Hong Kong progressives who, um, who find it very, are aware of how strange it is that, that the, the, the loudest voice for a while in support of them in the U.S. was somebody like Marco Rubio. And in Japan, it was people on the, Japanese, on the right in Japan hmm. who the, the young Hong Kongers I know, are, they're in favor of gay marriage. They're, they know that they're in favor of all kinds of social issues that the people who are supporting them internationally right. are not. Hmm. And, the, you, and it crosses both directions um, that way. And they're, they're aware of that. So I think one of the things is to think about um, the situation in Hong Kong now is very similar in some people's minds and legitimately, I think, it is an anti-colonial struggle. It, there's a feeling, at least among some people, for understandable reasons that Hong Kongers have never quite gotten to determine their own fate. They've gone from being part of one empire uh, that operated in a kind of traditional empire way to being part of another empire that may operate in a somewhat different way. Empires always um, try to make themselves seem less like previous empires. When the United States became an empire, it pretended not to be an empire. When Japan um, became an empire, it talked about when it took over Shanghai, the city we both talked about, uh, worked on, mm-hmm. they said they were freeing it from West, parts of it from Western domination and allowing it to be free, except that it had to be then governed by proxies of Tokyo. The, China, the People's Republic of China exerts a kind of control over Xinjiang, where um, the Uyghurs are being suppressed and other ethnic and uh, religious minorities, over Tibet and over um, Hong Kong increasingly, that, that feels very much like a retooled form of imperial control, and the protests then become anti-colonial. And anti-colonial protesters often um, are desperate to find anybody who's paying attention to their struggle and will support them. So even if it, even if it isn't the people they would choose, on other f- matters they, can, they want that. And some of them were, um, there's, I've been asked, so the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate, they passed resolutions about this, and um, it's what's happening in Hong Kong will not be settled by um, by what foreign governments do, but it's very important to protesters in Hong Kong that the world pay attention, and the world is easily distracted. Mm-hmm. It ratchets from one thing to another, so there's a desire for a, 
the spotlight to remain on Hong Kong. There are some people within the movement, though, who are divided. Some don't want the American government to say it's, they don't want people to carry American flags in protests. I wish protesters didn't carry American flags. That fits into this that narrative. That totally fuels the nationalism fuels in like China. That. But when I've seen big protests in Hong Kong, there's only been a tiny percentage of people who have British flags or American flags. And they're doing it probably to just sort of twist the tail of the Chinese authorities, but it's actually, it, it, it allows, it feeds into this narrative of it being external. And there's no question that there are people within, I'm sure within the CIA, for all I know, but definitely with the State Department, might be rooting for the Hong Kong protests, but that's different from being the creators of them. So we should move to questions, and before we do that, there's the, you know, the one I have to ask you, which is, so what do you see for the future of Hong Kong? You're talking about the uh, one, one country, two systems, and that was really a sort of a transitional thing, 50 years, right? Yeah. And at the, that's a hard stop. June 30th, 2047, we're almost halfway through. Yeah. And, and um, as you pointed out, the protester who took his mask off can never go back. Well... China's the most advanced in retina and facial recognition and all of that stuff. So any of these protesters, I mean, I, my heart goes out to them. They don't have a future in their their home. Yeah. And so what do you see as the, the potential here? I, I don't see any... I don't see any logical scenario that is a positive one for Hong Kong, uh, for, for the Hong Kong that was this very special kind of place. And I, I feel like maybe I haven't captured some of what makes it so special and different. You can claim a Hong Kong identity and be seen as a Hong Konger, even if you're not ethnically Chinese, in a way that you cannot really be seen as belonging to the people, any other part of the People's Republic of China if you're not. You can be of um, Indian, um, Indian roots or Baghdadi Jewish or from, any, from Indonesia and have lived there, and you can feel so that identity can be something that's different. Uh, you learn Cantonese, you become part of that world. So that's one of the things that's different. Mm. And you can have newspapers that criticize the leaders in Beijing. That's different. That still exists, but how much longer will it? So I don't think, I don't see a scenario where it's very possible unless something changes in um, Beijing. If Xi, Jin, if Xi Jinping or somebody like Xi Jinping is in power in 2047, then the prospects are really bleak. And it becomes a kind of noble but ultimately doomed protest where your heart goes out for them, as you were mm -hmm. saying. But what I try to keep in mind is how often not just Hong Kong but other places have defied the logical expectations. Um, Carrie Lam, the chief executive in Hong Kong, I often think of as being in a position similar to people like the head of East Germany when it was part of the Soviet bloc. And as long as there was somebody in Moscow who wanted East Germany to stay within the Soviet bloc and would give orders that, you know, worst comes to worst, I'll back you up with any kind of repression you want to do, then protesting in East Germany was this kind of noble but failed thing. People had tried it. It hadn't worked. Why did they keep trying it? But then at one point it did work. Mm -hmm. And it worked in part because there'd been the change in Moscow. But it worked also because history is just, we just can't figure out what's going to happen. The Berlin Wall wasn't supposed to fall in 1989. 
It was supposed to continue as long as anybody thought it would. Anti-colonial movements often are seem to be failures until they're not. Anti-apartheid uh, movements seemed as though it was impossible until it wasn't. Things have to happen, and the wider world's important to keep in mind because it changes the equations. So in a part, maybe the protests are... are some protesters are probably protesting even knowing that they can't win, but it feels like the right thing to do. Others may think there will become a time when, when we'll need to have resources to draw on because something will have shifted. Well, you can't read the future, but thank you for that. And thank you, Jeff. So, Thanks for the questions. Yeah. So we have a, a hand up already. So you mentioned Tibet. You mentioned the Uyghurs. The Chinese have clearly learned how to do repression well. What do they gain from allowing this to continue? Why don't they just <clears throat> come down hard, take a you know a year's worth of bad public opinion, and and move on and take control? I don't get it. Okay, good question. Um, so I do think that in uh, I think that the Chinese Communist Party is haunted by the memory of 1989. It doesn't want to go through that again. The, the, the global um, censure. And so one of the things it's tried very hard to do is keep movements like that happening. And that was a movement that spread throughout the cities across the country. So what they've tended to do is clamp down particularly hard at anything that spreads across borders, that connects people different places. So they used draconian methods against anybody on the mainland who expresses support for Hong Kong. But if it's confined with Hong Kong, then it's in some ways it's not that giant an issue. But the other thing is that... But, well, one of the things is that the, the other thing from 1989 is they, they didn't want to have anything that was the kind of image that would galvanize international opinion the way that the image of the tank man did, and the idea of a massacre in the streets. So, you know, it's not... So they, one of the things they, they, they didn't want to do is have People's Liberation Army troops involved in the suppression wearing army, wearing uniforms, that it would make it clear that it's a kind of invasion. They want to keep that subtler. They want to keep things done out of plain sight as much as possible. With the Uyghurs, there's been information that comes out, hundreds of thousands or over a million at one point were in these indoctrination camps, but there were not the kind of iconic photographs, in part because, right, controlling uh, communication. But also with the Hong Kong, with the repression in Hong Kong, Large amounts of tear gas, just, you know, historically uh, record-setting amounts of tear gas for a city is one thing. And we can say the numbers, but it's not the same as seeing um, the, the bodies of dead young people in particular or dead un, uh, unarmed people. And so at some level, the argument from Beijing or the messaging to the Hong Kong authorities was you take care of this on your own, not with our direct involvement, and do it without a massacre and ideally without martyrs. They used a lot of beanbag shot. They used a lot of uh, rubber bullets, things that, that wound people badly. Um, there was a journalist who had her eyes shot out. And they're, they're terrible things, but they're not the same in terms of really keeping a distracted world uh, direct on it. So there are things that um, the Chinese Communist Party is in a much stronger position than it was until recently. And it, it does have, it's not begging to be part of the international order the way it was before, but it does still want to host the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in 2022. And there are certain things that would happen 
that would make it that would give a groundswell to a boycott against that or would make it so that um, they would have a harder time. They want to be able to uh, have a large say in international bodies, including the World Health Organization. And even if they're getting bad press for some things, there isn't this kind of widespread condemnation that there would be if, if perhaps actions in Xinjiang were, were, were more visible and if the death toll in Hong Kong was high. That's, that's my best guess. My impression was that Beijing was taken aback by the election results with the democratic forces doing so well because they hadn't anticipated that and didn't fit their narrative. Is that correct? And do, what impact do you think it's had on its – they're thinking to, for them to be confronted with the fact that it's apparently a vast majority of Hong Kongers uh, support the protests. That's a great – another really good question. Um, so first of all, I would say that, yeah, I can't predict the future, and when I try to, I'm usually wrong. But also, I do not know what uh, – and nobody knows what this sort of inner circle in Beijing are really thinking about. And there, uh, James Palmer, who edits uh, the Asia section for foreign policy, wrote a great piece a few years ago that gets periodically recirculated. Just let's be honest about how much we don't know about elite politics in China, despite there was the idea that when people are going back and forth, when there are more news crews, you know, it wouldn't be so secret, but it really is. And Xi Jinping, you know, we don't know that much about it. So we don't know, for example, there are a couple of different scenarios. One could be that Xi Jinping, with his personality cult and uh, individual leaders, is now so in such a powerful position that people don't want to send bad news to him. So they're, they're sugarcoating it. This happened with Mao. It happens in other places. There's a wonderful book about um, um, Burma by Emma Larkin, who's written two great books on Burma. But one is called No Bad News for the King. Mm-hmm. And it was about how with natural disasters, you want to try to sugarcoat it to the all-powerful. I mean, and, it's another version of the emperor's new clothes. And that might yeah. be why the coronavirus, the, the officials in Wuhan sat on that and for a, a little while. This is connected, I think. Yeah. This idea is, is it that they're getting bad information or is it that they have an overstated view of their own ability to control things. Um, there was a large, there was a presumption during the movement that a lot of public opinion would be alienated from the protests. The longer they went on, the more businesses were suffering. And yet, and I think that might have been true if there was an international invest. What I don't understand, a mystery to me is why not hold an investigation of the police? One of the main protester demands. And the protesters say five demands, not one less, including universal suffrage. But for a lot of ordinary Hong Kong people at times like the elections, if there were an investigation going on of the police, they might have said, enough's enough, let's just rein it in. But they didn't. And that was part of what fueled the, the vote going the way it was, I think. So uh, the recent election in Taiwan, uh, how does that serve as a catalyst for keeping the status quo uh, in Hong Kong? It's a great question, and um, definitely the events in Hong Kong helped, the, um, helped tip the election the direction it did. It wasn't the only reason Taiwan has its own um, trajectory, and Taiwanese people have their own desires and goals. But one of the things that in 1997, um, or the lead-up to it and afterwards, one thing that Beijing said was, um, today's Hong Kong could be tomorrow's Taiwan. Keep an eye on Hong Kong. Look at how well one country, two systems works there. 
and then we'll do a version of one country, two systems for you. And you'll see that Hong Kong people get to enjoy the kind of life they had before. But, and initially maybe that worked pretty well. The touch was lighter than expected on Hong Kong by Beijing. But then the tightening began. And during the umbrella movement, some one Hong Kong poster that I saw said, uh, today's Hong Kong could be tomorrow's Taiwan. Beware. <laughs> and so I think that, so these are, these are, are intertwined. And I think right now with the coronavirus, which, you know, this is, it's a very important thing um, that <laughs> there are many different sides of it that we could talk about. Um, the, the way in which fear of it in this country gets overblown in part because of enduring ideas of dangers coming from, from a mysterious East or from, from um, and that, would, that don't matter about the political system in China. Fears of it that, so in my case, is that I don't trust the information coming from a particular government. It's not about, I mean, it's about the particular of the Chinese Communist Party and it's, 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 um, um, it's handling of facts. But I think one thing that's quite clear is that Hong Kong at this point is paying a price for being part of one country. That its, it's, it's people are being limited in movement and things like that in part because they're part of the People's Republic of China. But the two systems part would have meant a government that could really set its own agenda on how to respond to what was going on across the border. And it's clear that initially Carrie Lam was taking whatever direction came from Beijing and was slow in closing the border, was slow in doing things that people in Hong Kong wanted to. So the, the virus is saying, like, look, this is the kind of situation where it's really a negative to be part of the one country. And it doesn't seem that the two systems part is working very well. And from Taiwan to be watching this, this is one case where, God, you really want to be able to control this yourself. Plus, in a global thing, the Chinese Communist Party is often lauded for being technocrats and engineers who just do what needs to be done in a good way. If you were doing what needed to be done and just thinking technocratically and pragmatically, I just wrote about this in The Guardian, the World Health Organization, you would let Taiwan be a member right now because it functions differently and its doctors and its, its information should be flowing to and out of Taiwan freely. But Beijing is uncompromising about keeping Taiwan out of that. That's not how an engineer thinks. That's how an ideologue thinks. So I'm curious about the, the protesters in Hong Kong. So you mentioned rubber bullets being bean bags and tear gas and such, but we also saw a lot in the news of water cannons with indelible dye. So they're, they're, they're marking the protesters. What's happening to the protesters themselves? So what's happening now, um, there, there are – the protests have gone largely out of the news, but there have been continuing arrests going on both through that kind of marking and through seizing phones and seeing who's on the same social networks with each other. There's often been a kind of cat and mouse thing where the protesters, in part, not wanting to have leaders, not wanting to have very the, the theme of be water, flexible tactics, not being locked into being one place in past movements where you just occupied in one zone, the police could just surround you, being very fluid and flexible. But on the other hand, are there consequences? There are consequences. The consequences. So the consequences. Um, one of the first pieces I, I wrote about uh, after the, the Hong Kong protests, the Umbrella Movement protests, was would Mark Zuckerberg hire Joshua Wong? 
So Joshua Wong is a leader of the umbrella movement. Big user of social media. Global kind of person. Um, Mark Zuckerberg really wants everything that Mark Zuckerberg you would think would want in somebody. But what Mark Zuckerberg dreams about is becoming uh, access to the China market. He's blocked in. He's blocked in the mainland. So Beijing doesn't like Mark. He doesn't like Facebook. Beijing doesn't like Joshua Wong. It's a match made in heaven, right? But he wouldn't hire him because Joshua Wong, one of the first things that happens to protesters in Hong Kong is they lose the right to cross the border into the mainland. You might think, why would they want to go to the mainland? Well, Hong Kong businesses, Hong Kong economic opportunities, Hong Kong is partly a staging ground for companies that want access to the China market. So if you, early on, you say, you've been involved in the protests, you can no longer cross the border. That limits your economic future. I mean, it's it's, it's a very subtle kind of thing. Some of them are in jail. They spend a lot of time fighting. It, the courts still do operate to some extent, dependently, but still, you're, you're hassled. You, ha- you have to fight it. Some of them are in prison. There are, um, there are political prisons. Some have been driven effectively into exile from the place where you know, they really want to. They're fighting for it to be a home that they want to still be in, but some of them can't be there. So there are a variety of steps that are, are, are taken there. There have been lots and lots of arrests including of people as young as 12 or 13 or 14, because the protesters are quite young once. Anyway. Um, my question is, has to deal with the uh, financial future of Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the number of companies that are represented. It's been Asia's leading market, financial market to the world. If Hong Kong, and already we've seen uh, companies switching from Hong Kong to exchanges in Shanghai and Tokyo. What is your opinion about financial future in Hong Kong? I think it's uh, I think it's got real challenges to it. I think there are so the the dream from Beijing is that Hong Kong becomes less important this way because Shenzhen and Shanghai get built up uh, more like it. But also a lot of international companies, what they'll do is what I heard from from some business people I talked to. Not I don't talk to a lot of business people in Hong Kong, but some I did. We're saying it's not so much that companies are leaving as when companies are trying to decide where to have a base in Asia. In the past, they might have chosen Hong Kong, but now they might choose Singapore, or they might choose Bangkok, or they might choose Taipei, or they might choose Seoul. So it's not going to be necessarily that they'll choose Shenzhen or Shanghai, though those places are being built up. I think the kind of problem of trust is a key thing. I think this is one case, sorry to dwell on it, but it is on everybody's mind with the virus. If... Hong Kong had been allowed to take a very different approach to it, if the border had been blocked earlier, then you might have had a way in which businesses that would be saying, I don't trust any place in the People's Republic of China would say, oh, but I can still trust Hong Kong. So I think this is going to be a hit to Hong Kong's financial situation that's not going to help Shenzhen or Shanghai, but will help um, potentially Singapore. And one, and one of the things we saw from the Shanghai exodus in 1949, the businesses that were there, what they did was they hedged their bets. The, yeah. the business people who had the capital would move assets to another location. Maybe the revolution would not go that way or maybe it would go this way. So they, they would 
you know, sort of uh, decentralize some of their operations just in case. Yeah, that's one of their, a lot of these, and the two cities are twinned through history, Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. It's, Shanghai was the most important, you know, financial center and had the major stock, and then Hong Kong got it, and the hope is maybe it'll go back to Shanghai or Shenzhen, but it could go somewhere else. I think there's one more question, is that it? Okay. I have two questions, actually. You just mentioned that the Carrie Lam is taking orders from Beijing about whether to close the border or not. But my understanding is that a lot of people who work in Hong Kong but live in China, and vice versa. And so there are a lot of people who have to cross the border every day. I mean, how would those people fare if the border is totally shut off? You know? I, yeah, I mean, is I, that taking orders from Beijing, or is it just Carrie Lam trying to take care of the people who live, live like that? And the second question is this. One thing that really surprises me is the demands of the protesters are purely political. There are no economic demands, unlike the Occupy Wall Street movement, for example. It's like 1% versus 99%. But as I understand it, the Hong Kong situation, the rich and poor divide is much worse than the U.S. It's essentially run by a few big real estate uh, tycoons. And so how, why would the uh, protesters not even bother to raise any demands like that throughout their whole, whole history of protests? Like the 2003, uh, the, um, the, the yeah. well, Article 23, and then also the political uh, education, and then now um, Occupy Central Movement, and even now. They're totally political. How come there's no economic demand? Okay, okay. These, these, are, these are also uh, good, tough questions. So... Um, Two things. One is, yes, there are people who live on one side of the border, work on another side of the border um, that way. I think, the, again, the issue, some of it would be um, if Carrie Lam, through a series of, of things she's been doing, she keeps saying, I will start listening to the people of Hong Kong, and then nothing changes. There's no real sign of clear dialogue. There's no real uh, connection there. So the perception continues to be that she's simply taking orders from Beijing. It's not an easy thing to solve with the border, and actually there, there, I've heard um, it's also an, yet another irony that progressives in Hong Kong are some of the people who are calling for a harder border, and they realize that in the United States, progressives who they share other views with feel that hardening the border is a uh, right-wing move, not a, not a progressive move. So it's a complicated issue, but I think it's partly how it's being how it's being handled, that it doesn't seem to be handled with a clear, um, with a clear listening process to the people of, of, of Hong Kong. Carrie Lam doesn't give the per- perception of really playing to that community as opposed to playing uh, to Beijing. And with the economy, it's, it's in some ways kind of related to that. The leading powers in Hong Kong that have had... the the tycoon families, the richest families in Hong Kong, not all of them, but a significant number of them have made a rapprochement with Beijing. And there is an idea that economic power and these political issues go together. Um, not that that's the only place that, that, that wealth and power go together. But there's a, an idea that, yes, there are economic frustrations, but that the way to solve them may be through a, this political process. There were, um, econo- there were differences within the um, 2014 umbrella movement. There was an occupation in Mongkok where there was more discussion of economic issues um, and in Central where there's more discussion of political issues, to put that very crudely. 
there are people within the movement who talk about um, economic issues too, even though they don't rise to the top of the demands. Now at this point, the protest movement is largely, as protest movements often become, about the right to protest itself and about police brutality. And that's, I think, the reason why it connect, there's sympathy for it across economic borders because of that. Unfortunately, we've come to the point in our program where we have time only for one last question. So, um, Hi. Um, you talked about the uh, violence of the protesters against fellow civilians as being a rare incidence, but I'm hearing from friends uh, in Hong Kong that this is happening uh, frequently. You know, they're beating up people who speak Mandarin, they're, you know, they're uh, beating up people who disagree with them. They're smashing stores, burning stores, um, and people are afraid. You know, my, my girlfriend's father is very much pro-demonstrator, and yet he's afraid to go out at night because he's afraid of the, that's when the violent demonstrators, when there's less people on the street, are likely to be the most violent. So even people that support the demonstrators are afraid of the faction of the demonstrators that are violent. Uh, Can you speak to that? So, um, you know, this is something that's gotten much worse over the course of the movement, and yet the rhetoric was there very early in the movement. And one thing that's happened that's very hard in in this moment globally, too, is a small number of incidents, a relatively small number of incidents can be magnified by continual circulation. And so I, I do know, I mean, I know somebody who, who, who shares that feeling and will send me um, videos sometimes and say, you, you obviously haven't seen something like this. And I'll say, I've actually seen that. And that was an incident that, you know, that these are certain incidents that were, were terrible, but are, are used more often. What, what's, what's, and so I differentiate between the police violence and the violence from from protesters. And I think actually when there are incidents of just kind of any kind of violence is going to be read into and fed into this narrative now. Um, there is a there is the economic side of this is also the, that one thing that's happened with the movement is protesters have been calling for people to support yellow. There's a yellow economy. Eat at eat at restaurants that have taken a stance in support of the protests rather than uh, against them. So definitely there is, there are people who are being economically punished for their um, political stances or for even being um, apolitical. And that's part of driving it. But it's, there is a frustration. And I think this is, this is, um, this is something that's been building. And I think the ratcheting up of this process, and it has happened that it's ratcheted up on both sides. The ratcheting up has overwhelmingly been, in each stage, things that happen from the side uh, of police and police in league with, with, with triads, with, with thugs. And so it isn't that there isn't any thuggishness on the other side, but I think uh, in a kind of uh, keeping this in proportionality, I think, is important. And now, now it's just, it's, it's at a very, um, it's a very troubling stage stage. And I realize why it can feel like a very troubling city that isn't like the city it used to be, that many people are feeling that. That's a shared feeling almost across the political spectrum, that something's lost of Hong Kong, that it was a safe place, 
that it was a place with a police force that was looked at with admiration from other places, that that's lost. It was a place where the courts were fully independent, and that seems to be lost. So there's been this erosion of this along the way. And so I don't want to discount the sense that, um, that some people can have of having lost something that they felt was precious about the city in how safe it was. But I think this spiral really has been driven um, by a mix of what the government has done and the police in particular have done, but also what the government hasn't done, giving a sense that um, to, to kind of press a restart on this, you have to, uh, and I think it had to come at an earlier period too, say, look, we're going to look into what, what has been going on. Um, and it's clear there was widespread, widespread uh, uses of force by, by the police that a blind eye was turned to. There hasn't been disciplining of police officers, except for one police officer who was disciplined for showing some support for protests. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, not that, it's not that there aren't two sides to this story. It's that I think proportionality, proportionally wise, um, it's quite clear. And protesters themselves actually have apologized for acts of violence against, against civilians. The movement has tried to distance itself from that in a way that the government has not tried to distance itself from thug attacks and police attacks um, on, on unarmed protesters. Well, our thanks to Jeffrey Wasserstrom and Helen Zia for a most informative talk today. We also thank our audiences here as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. <laughs>